Hi, I'm Samuel. And I'm Bentley. And this is the Re-View Podcast. Podcast. Jeez, are you happy now? Was that so hard? Okay, you're right. I make everything (laughs) more difficult, and I want to apologize. (laughs) I want to apologize to all of our friends and family who still bother to listen to this. I make things harder than they need to be. I'm sorry. He does play a high degree of difficulty, but that's why we love him. Um, So... (laughs) Speaking of high degree of difficulty... This whole podcast is a high degree of difficulty because although we will have fun doing podcasts that really are uh, more current, you know, we, we just did one about the Justice League because we saw it together. They're characters that we love and care about. We know that it's geek stuff. We know that it's got a very narrow focus. And the idea of the review podcast really is harder than that. It's not just us sitting down and talking. So here's what we did last night. I grew up with The French Connection being absolutely a part of the canon. It won five Oscars. It was a huge uh, career boost for Gene Hackman, uh, who I think he's also been nominated for five Oscars, and he's won twice. He won Best Actor for this movie, and then he won Best Supporting Actor for Unforgiven. And I love Unforgiven. Oh, God. I watched that sucker like every two years. But I hadn't seen The French Connection since I watched it uh, coming out of college because I knew it was in the canon wanted to see it, and I remembered liking it at the time, but I hadn't seen it in 30 years, so that's exactly why I was trying to get Samuel to sit with me to do some of this work. Let, let, let's go back. You know, people probably know about The French Connection, but who actually has watched it lately? And who really talks about it as being a vital part of our American art form? I don't hear people talking about it, so last night we sat down and watched it. And there are certain elements of it that hold up really well. I mean, there's that uh, the scene that everyone cites, the iconic car chase of him speeding underneath the train uh, as it goes through the, the New York streets, uh, getting in all kinds of car crashes and mayhem, and it's clearly the blueprint for dozens of movies that would follow. Yeah, There is a lot of great character beats and interaction from Popeye Doyle, played by Gene Hackman, with not just his partner, but also the criminals of New York City, mm-hmm. and how he plays off of them, and how he interacts with them, and their chief of police, who's played by the real Popeye Doyle. So we'll get to the reality uh, in a second, but I wanted to take what you just said and say that I think that's what makes it hard to go back and watch some of these things that were so foundational, right? I mean, now you turn on Netflix or, or television, and you've got acres and acres of cop procedural shows, right? I mean, you've got Law & Order coming out your ears. Yeah. And it's hard to go back to a time, 1971, when that kind of grit and realism and looking at how cops actually do their jobs, you know, it's hard to get back into that mentality. Now, I'm old enough that I remember that on television at the time and in most other movies, you know, the cops were clearly the good guys, right? This is the era of one Adam 12, right? Where they just have the squarest jawed guys playing the cops and it's Hawaii Five O, and they're all good guys and it's, there's no ambiguity whatsoever. Book them, Dano. And so then, here comes this movie in 1971, where, you know, Popeye Doyle is a real jerk. Uh, he drops the N-bomb in the second scene he's in. Yeah, it's And you're just crazy. like, whoa, uh, whoa, Popeye, dude, come on, man. So it was a real shock to the system at the time, and I think that's why it got into the canon, it wins five Oscars, including Best Picture, and it's the first originally R-rated movie to win Best Picture, right? So it, it's just coming at you full force with, like, this is New York City grit. This is real. Yeah. And they use a lot of documentary techniques to try and emphasize the grit and realism of the story that they're telling. Shaky camera work, first-person angles, 
really interesting stuff with how they frame the shot. They do a lot of really interesting far away and really tight framing as well. Mm. Um, these are not standard shot reverse shot movie angles. You know, they're really, we were kind of joking because there's an on foot chase scene at one point where the camera is really pulled way back from the action but that almost lends it more of an air of realism as if the cameraman's trying to keep up with these people on foot and he can't. Or if you yourself are an eyewitness, right? Like, so you might see the undercover cops chasing a guy run past you, so that's close up, and then you see them finally catch him over in the field across the street. Well, you're not going to run with them. You would see them at a distance finally get the guy on the ground. Yep. Right? So, so there's a real eyewitness feel to this. And it's fun to go into IMDb. We always do this after we watch a movie. We go in and we read the trivia section under IMDb, and it turns out a whole bunch of this movie was either unscripted or they didn't like get it approved ahead of time. They so didn't get permits for anything. They didn't get permits for anything. There's they a, didn't build a single set. They just shot where they could. They shot in like 87 locations in New York. They did not build one single set. The story is that the director had this idea. So this was a real cop. This French bust of drugs really happened in the early 60s. Somebody writes a book about it. And this director, who's just getting his career started, uh, is scrounging around to get approval for the movie. And, and one of the studio heads is just like, look, I got $2 million sitting in a drawer. If you can make it for $2 million, you got it. And that's what they do. They just hit the streets. That's all they do. And it shows. I mean, the movie has a veracity to it. It has a, a life to it that I think people were able to catch on and recognize in 1971. Not just because it's based on real events and then based off a best-selling novel, but because all of these places are real and and the way that they film it is very realistic and the way that the policemen interact you pointed out that there's a scene where there's kind of a back and forth between the police chief and an I, fbi agent. And an fbi agent basically saying like look don't give my guys don't be too harsh on them you know yeah. they've got to do their jobs you can't be an impediment to that and there's no like quippy one-liners it's not really a back and forth the fbi guy's just going like, yeah yeah i got it i got it and you can tell he, he does, doesn't get it. Yeah, he doesn't want But that's reality. There's not really a lot of resolution in that scene. It's just him being pestered by the current police chief. And there are no one-liners, right? Yeah. That's the other thing that I've tried to impress on you through all the years that we've watched movies is that that whole one-liner thing really doesn't become a locked-in feature of Hollywood action movies until, you know, Schwarzenegger. Yeah. Right? The, the whole one-liner thing. Shane Black and Lethal Weapon kind of creates that as well. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely an 80s thing. Yeah. So... So what you read on the IMDb trivia is that a whole bunch of this dialogue is just made up, right? Gene Hackman and Roy Scheider, this is uh, just a couple of years before Roy is in Jaws, and he actually gets nominated for an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor, doesn't win, but he's clearly, you know, grade A Hollywood talent. A whole bunch of their dialogue is just because they rode with the real cops for a couple of weeks, which is now kind of a standard thing, but they did it back then for the realism, and they're just making up their dialogue. Yeah. They have beats they need to hit in a scene, and that's it. And they just go. Yeah. But we're talking about all the things that work in the film, but I think what we're saying is what's been echoed by a lot of you know film scholars and a lot of stuff that's been written about this film. Looking at it through modern eyes, there's plenty that doesn't work. There's a lot that doesn't work. The villain, I think, is where I'd start. Yeah. It's, I don't even remember this guy's name. They he's just, very weak. He's very weak. He is a budget French version of Christopher Lee. Yeah, <laughs> well, I think Maximilian Schnell, but okay. Okay, I I thought Christopher Lee just because probably the facial hair, like they try and make him like I don't even know what they're trying to portray him as. Like they're one of the first scenes with him is him 
and his, uh, you know, loving wife having a wonderful, you know, like, oh, I missed you, you were gone for so long thing. That, it's that, like, it wasn't his loving wife, dude. That was his loving French girlfriend. Oh, okay. Well, this is his mistress. Eh, well, <laughs> anyway, love can come in many forms. It, and, and, well, that's true, but that's a different podcast. Okay, but now then listen. the next scene you see him in, he's walking up to this weird, like, abandoned Croatia, like, castle, yeah, yeah. and he picks a sea cucumber out of, like, just, like, the muck and starts eating it, and you're like, what is wrong with right. you, dude? So that's the pro- That's one of the major problems with this movie is they want him to be a Bond villain, but he's not. No. Right? He's, he's way undercooked for a Bond villain. He's way undercooked for a Bond villain, and if you want realism to be what the whole movie brings, you know what? What they should have decided to do is not show him at all until the undercover cops start to figure out who he is, right? Don't show us any of that stuff of him at his villa on the Mediterranean, okay? That's baloney. It doesn't fit in this movie. The whole title says French Connection. We understand there's going to be a French Connection. Don't try and insert a Bond villain into this that you've underwritten. Yeah. Right? If you're going to show us gritty New York, just build the whole story from the ground up, gritty New York. Yep. And have leave us in as in the dark as, as Doyle exactly. is. Exactly. You know, it would think about that scene where the sniper starts shooting at him. How much more shocking and interesting would that be if we didn't know who the sniper was? Yeah, right. This is just some dude rather what than the, the odd job of this film. Which, you know. Whom we've seen many times. Yeah, because... and in much better films. No, no, no. I'm saying this character, we oh, saw oh, yeah, way yeah. too much of him in the movie. Oh, I misunderstood. Yeah, we, yeah, yeah. we know clearly who he is and what the threat is. And I think we actually... Uh... He shoots a guy in the second scene of the film. We know this guy's dangerous. And we actually hear the French you know, mastermind tell him to go shoot these guys yeah. right so so for the viewer there's absolutely no surprise whatsoever and i think it would have been better if we had been a little more surprised yeah uh, you know here's here's doyle walking through the projects and somebody just starts shooting at him from yeah. a rooftop yeah. and that's the next 20 minutes of the film is resolving that yeah you know that's really interesting yeah uh, so it's actually an idea it's a great idea and it was important for its time but it really doesn't have as much story as I think a modern audience would like. And so I actually talked to a film professor I know, hey Taz, and he said he still shows uh, at least portions of this in, in some of his film classes. And I could understand how you might want to show the 20-minute car chase or at least note this movie uh, as you know important for its time. But you know what? I would not make somebody sit down and watch this. No, no, not at all. Uh, this is not in the canon anymore. I think it's, it's not, dropped it's, out. It's... it's... There's a difference between, like, oh, like, people who have been listening to the podcast have actually commented to me, like, Samuel, you seem to just hate slow films. Uh, no, no, no. There are plenty of slow things I can appreciate. This is, feels more like aimlessness at times. Like you're just <laughs> floating from one thing to the next, and there'll be some kind of resolution, but not much, or they'll spend too much time on it. There are, you and I pointed this out repeatedly, you could probably shave... 10 minutes off this movie by just cutting the length of times that they hold a shot sometimes. Well, they show a lot of walking. Yeah, it's <laughs> There's just, a whole lot of walking. Just like, dun, 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 I'm walking, walking. This movie has serious <laughs> continuity problems with itself, like from, from well, second to second, not just right. scene to scene. And so that's the problem with... Um, an improvisational... An improvisation where they're just filming uh, you know, on location, like that very first chase where Gene Hackman is dressed as Santa Claus, which was a, something that the real detective did. You know, it starts off clearly in the dead of night, and he's singing with children, so probably this is before 9 p.m. Yeah, it's like 8 p.m. And and as soon as they start the chase of the guy they want to nail, it's daylight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, How long Whoa. have they been running? <laughs> my, favorite, my favorite was 
Because you were so proud of this explanation. Like, I was making fun of, at one point, he's on foot pursuing the actual French connection, the, yeah. the French guy. Yeah. And he takes off. His heavy uh, overcoat. His heavy overcoat because he doesn't want the guy to recognize him as he's chasing after him. And I'm like, the overcoat Why? is black, yeah, and, and then like, underneath he's got like kind of a tan suit. Yeah, I'm like, and so okay, I'm is... I'm kind of being snarky. I'm like, Why do you take off the thing? And your Marvel no prize explanation was, okay, well I don't, you know, he shouldn't, he won't recognize him, or he's trying to just, you know, make himself look different at a glance. The very next shot, he has the overcoat on again. Yeah, no, it's, it's terrible. It's so sloppy. It's so sloppy. Uh, and then early on, uh, he's kind of casing a bar, and he's looking at these low-level criminals, you know, who are going to lead to the French Connection, and he's literally talking about, you know, who's that guy sitting there. And as they keep cutting from he and his partner at the bar, looking at this table in the corner, the people sitting at the table change. Sometimes the guy's there... And then the next shot, he's not. At one point, the film stock quality changes. Like, <laughs> I don't understand what's happening. Like, it's... Yeah, no. So I, I can appreciate this as a concept. This is kind of the flip of our Wonder Woman podcast, where I finally was excited that the great concept got a great story. Well, here we've got a great concept, but the story just does not live up to it. No, and it's just kind of meandering and wandering, and, and it's very difficult for me to... I like these characters, but it's very difficult for me to really care about the events that are happening to them. And some things just seem to be random, and some scenes take far too long. And they just, I think, needed an editor. They needed better continuity. And I think you cut out all of the villain scenes. Every time you see either the American criminals or the French criminals talking with other criminals without any sort of involvement from the police, that scene should not exist. Yeah. I don't want to know what they're scheming, what they're thinking, what they're planning. I want to be with Doyle. Yeah. You know, a borderline first-person movie. Right, because that would fit with the whole documentarian feel of this yeah. thing. You know, just make it, you know, this is Popeye's story. Yeah, this is his story. And you really get to see Popeye's life. It's really interesting to see that his day-to-day -day life continues as they're working on this case. It's really interesting in that regard. It, it helps lend it that level of veracity. Because when you watch a narrative... Usually the only parts of the characters' lives you see have to do with the main story. And then there's this scene where he's following a chick on a bicycle, just totally just oogling her. Yeah. And then the next scene, it's just like... He's oh, handcuffed to his he's bed. He's handcuffed and, to his bed. And she's in the apartment. And it's like, <laughs> that had nothing to do with the French connection. That's just letting you know that Doyle is looking for love. Like, <laughs> okay. All right, I gotcha, and I like that stuff. You know, that's a nice little well, detail. I thought that was one of the most interesting scenes in the movie, and so, yes, if you if you really zero in and make this the Popeye Doyle story, then you would get maybe another scene of that or something, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so. I just love Gene Hackman just being a total skeef. <laughs> there's, there's a shot as he's following her where he's just like, yeah. Well, you want to and make that into a gift. I do, I do. <laughs> oh, my God, it's so perfect. It is pretty interesting, you know. He is um, on. He is... Uh, Unpleasant, but that's what makes Doyle so interesting. And allegedly, a whole bunch of mainline big Hollywood stars turned down this role, right? I mean, people like Steve McQueen turned it down, uh, Lee Marvin turned it down, uh, Robert Mitchum, all kinds of people who were really A-listers. And Gene had had uh, plenty of work on television before this, and he had gotten some notice. Uh, Bonnie and Clyde is a couple of years before this, and so you know he was an interesting character in that movie, not a lead, really. but uh, So he had gotten some notice for that, and then he takes this, and his career just takes off after this. He's done a 100 movies. He's got 100 credits as an actor. And uh, 
you know, after the fact, he says, oh, yeah, you know, I was kind of uncomfortable using some of that language, you know, some of the slurs. But you know what? It really seems like it sets the template for the rest of his career. Yeah, yeah, I don't know how far. You talked about Unforgiven earlier. I see plenty of parallels between his character and Unforgiven and, and, Absolutely. and Popeye. Absolutely, and we keep talking about watching Crimson Tide. Same kind of thing. Yeah, we got to watch Crimson Tide. Yeah, we had to compare it to um, Kane Mutiny. Yeah, yeah. I also find it weird that, you know, the first thing you see when you boot up the film and the first poster that's most iconic for the film is really the culmination of the second act. Like, as somebody who's not really that spoiler-phobic, I was just kind of surprised that they just show straight up, oh, here's Doyle shooting the guy who he's going to pursue for 20 minutes. Yeah. So as soon as you see that scene start, if you walk past the poster and your way to pay for the you know ticket in is, 71, yeah. you're like, well, I know how that scene ends. But that's just, again, why this is more concept than story. What you're saying is they ruined the story, Yeah. what story element there was. But the concept of a cop shooting a guy in the back, okay, was so radical and unpleasant and just not shown in our major media that that got everybody's attention, right? That sold the movie. This was the third highest grossing movie of the year, and he was a badass. It really was different. I guess. So, you know, tough to argue with the role that it has played in our society, but now you want to watch, you know, a cop who's got problems and, and... is outside the law. Well, you just turn on the television. Yeah, no. right. That's every single <laughs> That's cop every now. Single cop. I don't think there is a show that has two by the book cops anymore. Right, exactly. Well, maybe Hawaii Five O reboot. Which I'm still still trying to get you to watch. Okay, well, it's actually it's actually pretty good. Fuck on, Dano. <laughs> All right, you know, we're actually 10 minutes short, but I think it's okay to have a 20-minute podcast. I don't know what else to say about The French Connection. I think it's out of the canon. I think there are elements of it that are important to discuss and share and talk about and recognize its influence. It's what you and I always come back to when we kick something out of the canon. You can recognize its influence without it being essential viewing. Correct. It's yeah, not, yeah. And, it's and, really not. Right, so I think we've talked about this in other podcasts where... You know, some people would actually say that does mean it's in the canon in that you just have to know about it, right? So it's like cocktail party talk. If somebody wants to start talking to you about the French Connection, can you stand at a Christmas party and, you know, reference it and talk about the characterization? You know, that's one level of knowledge. See, to me, that's not the canon. I'm trying to focus in our podcast on what do you make the next generation actually watch. Yeah, sit all the way through and watch. Because otherwise, it's just Wikipedia. Yes, indeed. Right? You can talk at the cocktail party about French Connection if you just spend three minutes reading the Wikipedia entry. Mm -hmm. Okay? But that doesn't give you a sense or your own relationship to the artwork. And I guess that, to me, is the big difference. What we're trying to talk about, I'm trying to talk about on this podcast is what pieces of art are so important that you should sit down and make your own mind up and have your own personal relationship with the artwork. And Wikipedia is, is something that's in between you and the artwork. And which movies are slow and boring and you shouldn't watch them? Oh, wait, I'm sorry. My 25-year-old is showing. <laughs> hey, I want the record to show that last night, yes, I dragged him through the French Connection, but I agree with his assessment. It's off the canon. But then I also watched anime, okay? Yeah, yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. He watched One Punch Man. We're all very proud of him. And I also promised to re-watch... Evangelion with you. Yeah. We're going to do a podcast about his favorite anime. I don't so. think there's ever been 
any podcast or any discussion ever that mixed the French Connection and then also had discussion of end of it, uh, <laughs> Evangelion at the end of it. But anyway, we'll cut it off there. Because that's what you get from us. You get everything from the French Connection to Neon Genesis Evangelion. Someday, someday soon. Thank you all very much for listening. I'm Samuel. And I'm Bentley. And this has been the Review Podcast. Podcast.